Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is the award-winning actor, singer, director, composer, and playwright, Billy Porter. Last year, Billy published his memoir called Unprotected. I finished the book in one sitting, and after reading it, I couldn't stop reflecting on his incredibly brave, vulnerable, and inspiring story. Billy and I talked about what it means to be in your own integrity and how authenticity has been the catalyst for his career and his art. Billy's commitment to living a life with intention and purpose is palatable, despite the hardships and trauma he's faced in childhood and beyond. I so admire Billy's honesty, his willingness to talk about how healing isn't always linear, and how he's continuously learning to take care of himself and be of service too. So let's get to my chat with the marvelous Billy Porter. Hello! How are you? I can't even believe that I get to talk to you. I can't even believe it. First of all, the love that I've had for the whole thing. The conversations that you're having with the world are so inspiring to me. You know, and I'm a person who my art is how I communicate with the world, with everything and everybody. My art is intentional. You know, it's like I made a commitment to myself decades ago that it was only about me being authentic and being present and being a change maker. And if that means being a disruptor, that's what it means because that comes along with it sometimes, you know? And so to watch other people 
who you admire doing those same kinds of things, it's inspiring and it helps, you know, and it's helped me like go, you know what, you're on the right path. Not everybody needs to understand you. You're not for everybody and that's okay. So anyway, I just wanted to say that and I'm just so excited and I just love the hell out of your husband. He is the kindest and most supportive, like, you know, working on that team with that team, you know, I was spoiled because they are fearless. Yeah. My first experience in film and television that was consistent and that put me on the map was Pose. So it was the first time that I was working with a team consistently over a period of time. And there's no fear there. So it's like, it's the greatest space for the kind of art that has vision and has intention and has integrity. Don't you think that's where lack of fear comes from? Like you have to be a hundred percent in your own integrity and you have to be a hundred percent authentic. Yes. Yes. Otherwise you're thinking, am I stepping at, am I putting a foot wrong? What are people going to say about this? And your actions come from that place. And it's, that is not where art is created in my experience. Not great art. (laughs) No. Mm -mm. You know, some art is, but not the greatest art. No. So in terms of pose then, when you look back, did you know when you were doing it that it was that much of a kind of freedom of expression? You know, I had a really hard time crossing over from theater to film and television. First of all, I had a hard time crossing over from musical theater and singing early in my career because, you know, my singing voice is the gift from above, right? I popped out doing that. As an artist, all of the other things I discovered and nurtured on my own. Which is such a beautiful, one of the beautiful narratives in the book is the way that, you know, you've been blessed with this gift of voice. And then it's like, you're holding on to its tail and it's taking you into dancing and acting and self-discovery. And it was so interesting for me to read that acting didn't come incredibly naturally to you. I did not understand it at all. I didn't understand this idea of like, just being in the moment and letting be. I had an acting teacher and I was in a gospel choir. My best friend, Michael McElroy had a gospel choir in school and it was extracurricular and we would do concerts and, you know, that's where I lived. That's where I grew up. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. You know, and so I had a big solo one year and it's like, it started with me singing a solo and it's a storytelling song for like, you know, I sang solo for like four minutes before the choir even came in. And then it's just this thing that builds and builds and builds. It's, it's called When Sunday Comes. And it's one of my favorite songs. Anyway, we did the concert. I went to acting class the next day and I was working on my scene. I don't remember what it was. And the teacher said to me, I was at your concert last night. And I said, okay. And he said, 
whatever it is that you do to connect when you're singing that Jesus music is what we're talking about as an actor. You have to have that same, you have to get into it in whatever it is that you're doing, figure out what that is and you're going to be fine. And it was, it was a turning point for me. That's an epiphany. It was a huge turning point for me because what he was saying to me in that moment was, all you have to do is show up and be real and be your authentic self. But I always say it's easy to be who you are when what you are is what's popular. And in 1987, and I have a lot of compassion now for my teachers who at the time I would say were homophobic, but now I look back at it and I go, oh no, there was nothing that looked like me. Nobody understood that in, in these training programs, nobody comes into it thinking this person is gonna change the game. This person is new. What this person represents is something that the world hasn't seen before. So let's nurture that. That's not what that's not what acting schools did in the 80s. I don't know what they do now. But you know, so the only archetypes that they had for me were. James Earl Jones, the patriarch, Denzel Washington, the sex symbol, and Eddie Murphy, the genius clown. And all of those types, those were the only types we had at that time. And all of those types were straight and sometimes violently so. So they were trying to prepare me for the market and it wasn't until I got out of school and I lived for the first like 10, 15 years of my career. And I realized that the road I was going down was not the road I wanted. And I had to sort of like pull myself back and look at it and go, well, how can I go down the road I want to go down? And, you know, I was watching Oprah as we were all want to do. As we do. As I we still do, As we do. As we do. And she had Alanya Van Sant on and Maya Angelou on, and they were talking about service. Mm. And their whole point was when you shift your life's work and intention to service, everything else will work itself out. I think that's what I, that's what I was gushing over with you and Goop is that to me, that's what I've seen you find and delineate and speak and do, right? And so I literally, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a firm believer in spirituality and like we speak who we are and what we are into ourselves by our language. Like, you know, I'm, I'm that person. So I literally looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, what does service look like? for me in an industry and quite frankly, a world that is inherently narcissistic. What does that look like for me? What does service in that space look like for me? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, it's the very thing that everybody is telling you is your liability, which is your queerness. And everybody has 
really, you know, they're just trying to help me. Nobody was, you know, nobody was out there trying to, you know, like harm me. But everybody said to me, your queerness will be your liability. You can't do it like that. And so to be an actor and for them to say, be yourself, and that's how you become a great actor. And then in the next breath, but you can't be a faggot. Literally. In the same sentence, it bound, bound me up for decades because it was like, well, I'm just now then trying to be masculine enough for other people by other people's definition of what that means, which when you're walking into an audition room or you're meeting people, you don't know what their definition is, but you know that it's not you. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that the definition of masculinity was not me. And it was in my, in my late 20s, I saw a production of the very first production of Tony Kushner's Angels in America. And I sat in that theater afterwards seeing the incomparable Jeffrey Wright inhabit the role of Belize and realizing for the first time in my life, I was seeing myself reflected back at me in a piece of art where the character was grounded, human, three-dimensional, and the moral leader of all those white people. He was the moral center. And I just thought, that's who I am. And I have to get to that. That was in the late 90s. And I pulled myself out of everything. And I said, as a, as a test, and I was like, I started to, de to demand in the market, see me as a human being, call me in for parts. Not just the show stopping, blow the roof off the joint, person when your show gets boring in the middle of the second act and then I'm sitting in my dressing room doing nothing and there's no but you needed you needed leverage to even get to that point correct. which is so right correct but I pulled myself out of it before I had the leverage thus my 30s which was like tumbleweeds and like a really difficult decade for me because just as I had suspected when I made that decision for myself, that was the, the, the moment I said, I'm gonna be authentic. I'm gonna be queer. Nobody else is doing it. I'm going to do that. And you're gonna see me as a human being. All of the work dried up for about a decade. And it was such a gift because that was when I was challenged to go deeper. You know, I was asking in the universe, God, whatever you say, it's like, I'm more than my voice. I'm more than my voice. I need to be seen as more than my voice. But the actions, my actions were not in alignment with that because I was too scared to not have the money to support myself. And so I said I was more than my voice, but then I would take these jobs that were always about my voice because I needed to eat. And September 11th happened and I was living in Los Angeles, trying my hand at Los Angeles. And on the 12th, 
of September, the day after September 11th, I lost my voice to acid reflux. I lost my superpower. I lost my Samson metaphoric hair. Like I lost it for years. Years? Years. Like I didn't have full and complete consistent access. You know, I was consistent. I could sing eight shows a week. I could wake up, roll out of bed and sing anything. And all of a sudden I couldn't. And it forced me to, first of all, take that really complicated journey of believing in myself first, believing that I was more than my voice first before I could require anybody else to do that. Then as a result, it forced me to go deeper in my creativity and challenge myself to things that I never, I didn't know that I was a writer. I went to the professional program in screenwriting at UCLA, like full on, full out. I was like, oh shoot. You know, I knew I wanted to direct, but I thought I was gonna do it in my twilight years, I started directing, I started creating. And you know, when you're doing that in a, in a vacuum, you're not making money for it. I wasn't making money for it, but my thirties was the moment in my life where everything changed because I went deeper in every front. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Can I ask you about that? Because what was so fascinating to me was to understand the correlation between your unprocessed grief. Yes and trauma that you had experienced in your youth and how that was impeding this God-given gift, right? It was almost like your very human unwillingness to feel and process your trauma and your grief was keeping you from your gift. Well, I will add to that. I will say to that eventually it was. Eventually it turned into that. But from the time that I was seven, when the sexual abuse with my stepfather started to the time that I was 12, so there was that chunk, unprocessed. I always say 
It's weird to say, it's a very strange thing, but I believe it to my core, that it was the trauma of that abuse so early that opened my eyes inside of the community that I was in to see the truth early. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. Yeah. And mm -hmm. what happens is, unfortunately, a lot of people in that space who have energy that's outside of the box, that energy very often gets squashed for religious reasons. Because at the age of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, the aftermath of it, I could look around and see all of these pious religious people not do anything to protect me. And then because of religion, blame me, my sexuality. I could divorce myself from that early. And I was already in search of a different kind of spirituality by the time I was 12. I knew I couldn't stay in that because whatever that was, was dangerous. I didn't have the language for it at the time, but I just knew I had to get out. But it was the trauma that activated and motivated me because I had a really special gift that could get me out. So if I focused on that gift and made sure that all of the energy that was unprocessed went towards that, at the very least, I could get out of the toxic space that I was in and then do something different once I was out. But my goal from the time I was 12 years old was to get out. Right. So fast forward to coming out. The other layer of trauma is coming out in 1985 at 16 years old. And I'm right in the middle of the AIDS crisis. So right to the front lines to fight for our lives, coming of age. And I'm marching because my friends are dying. I had lost more people by the age of 21 than my grandmother had at 82. So. When I got to senior year of college and I, the second semester I booked the original company of Miss Saigon, I moved to New York and I was out. But I didn't even, I didn't even know, like my body couldn't process that I was out. So it was another 10 years of me trapped inside of the trauma of being unprotected. Did you blame anybody for that? It doesn't seem that you have any resentment at all towards your mother no, or I anybody. Didn't, I didn't have the time to blame anybody, mm -hmm. quite frankly. I didn't mm -hmm. have any time to blame anybody because I was like, I have to be successful. Whatever this is, I have to be successful. I can't be a statistic. I, I have the talent and I have the vision to do something different with this trauma, to turn it into something that's good for me and then the world. You know, the trauma was my engine for a long time. 
It was my engine for the first three decades of my life. You know, and then I got Pose. I knew going in that this job was going to be different. I didn't know what, but I knew that it was in line with my service. Like I talked, I said, I'm going to be of service. I'm going to be queer. I'm going to be out. That was like 32 when I was 32. I was like, so stuff started happening, right? 2010, I was cast in the first revival of Angels in America off Broadway. Then Kinky Boots came along. I was Lola, then Pose. It's like all of these things are now stacking up as service. And with the storyline, the blessed storyline that I was given and what they crafted for me, what I didn't know was that Pray Tell was going to be a proxy for my own healing, for my own unprocessed grief and trauma that I didn't even know I had. I didn't even know I had it, right? It's like, I knew I couldn't feel joy. I knew that, but you're on the hamster wheel. You're on the treadmill. It's like, I don't have time because I have to eat, right? So COVID. For the first time in my life, everything stops. My husband and I, at the time, were going through a complicated marriage time, as marriages do. And we decided to like take the moment to really dig in. My husband found this trauma therapy group called CMC. He started going for trauma therapy. I met a different therapist. I started going for trauma therapy. And then we started doing couples therapy with this same group together, uh, this group of therapists. And when I tell you, I am so, you know, we're talking more about mental health now, but I am so blown away by what the psychiatric community and their work and their you know, how they've really created tools for us as humans to really, truly process our shit. So, so what are some of them? I mean, how, how did she start to get you? So there's this thing called EMDR, but you have to, do, you're supposed to do it in person. And so she was going to do that with me, but because we couldn't be in person, she went to this thing called exposure therapy. And so for me, what that meant was you go to your index trauma, which for me was the sexual abuse, the thing that's in my brain every day, all day for my entire life since I was seven. In your brain in or brain, in your body? It's in my brain, in my body for my entire life, the whole time. I hadn't had sex sober in 30 years. Didn't know how had to disconnect, still working on that part of it. But the exposure therapy component is, so I had to record myself speaking, telling the story of my index trauma, and then listen back to it 
in between mm. sessions every day and measure my subjective units of distress, AKA anxiety surrounding it. And so like the intake, you have to fill out all these forms, right? Some of them are one to five, some of them are one to 10 measuring like, you know, not just how you answer the questions. And then they add up at the end and it tells you the level of your PTSD and the level of your trauma. My numbers were at the highest they could be. And what I didn't understand, and I discovered in this were two things. First of all, in my work, whether it is Angels in America or whether it's a play that I wrote about my family called While I Yet Live, that's about my sister, me and I, healing from the trauma of the abuse or whatever it was, what my therapist under, began to understand was that, and she hadn't seen Pose, is that my work is exposure therapy. Playing the role of pray tell was exposure therapy without being monitored by a professional. And so then you layer into it, it was one of the only times that there was someone in a position of that kind of power that were giving me an opportunity and taking me seriously as an actor. I was so thrilled to be being taken seriously as an actor that I had no idea that I was being re-traumatized every single time I went to work. Every single day. So, you know, I'm I think I'm turning it out. You know, you, I'm you giving are, them are. take after take after take. I'm giving tears. I'm giving drama. I'm giving, you know, and I'm not, my body, our bodies, as you know, do not know that it's fake. So it's being re-traumatized every time I go into work for two seasons. And as a result, unconscious of it, I'm then unconsciously, bringing that energy home and traumatizing everybody else around me. The new version of Billy understands how to take care of myself inside of telling these complicated stories now. How do you do that? Are you talking to yourself? Are you using tools? Well, there is a version, my version of meditation. And my version of meditation is putting my ear pods on and listening to people like Tara Brock. Mm -hmm. She's amazing. Or listening to people like Brene Brown. Yeah. Or Oprah. Or turning yes. on my Netflix and watching Goop. So for <laughs> real, like, it's like, that's how I meditate. Because I haven't been able to sort of do the, the ohm thing yet. I'm going to get there. But like, for me, it's like to hear people talk it out in real time to put language to it is a really, really good thing for me to do. The other thing that I learned, and I'll go back to it, the safe space for me is when I'm on a set, how many takes can my body handle? And so after the take is done and you've given three and you've given all you can, is there some sort of repair that you need to do? You know, for me, what I'm finding, because I also moved out of the city 
during the pandemic. I lived in Manhattan for 30 years. So during the pandemic, I realized, oh, I need space. I need peace. I need quiet. And so we bought a house. And I've never been in a position where I could buy a house before. I mean, oh my God, like I came from abject poverty. I was like, wait, what? I can afford a house out with all these white people out here? <laughs> I can afford a house on an acre of land with a swimming pool with 5,000 square feet? And like, I'm like, but I live here. I'm going to New York to work, but when it's time to recharge, but what I discovered and what I realized is I may have started out as an extrovert, but this is me. I am this. I, I am an introvert. Yes. I think I started out as an extrovert. Me too. And I say this all the time. Oh, this is amazing. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a situational extrovert. Mm -hmm. because I know how to be an extrovert and I'm good at it. And I like, and you, and, and it made you a survivor and it made you a career. And I like it. I like, I love people. I like it. But the definition is what energizes you being an extrovert sucks all the energy out of me. When I am home alone and introverted, that's something that I've discovered in the last five years that I'm actually an introvert, believe it or not, because that's where I recharge. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Can I ask you a question? And if it's too personal, Nothing's tell me too to personal. Well... I think, you know, we're, we're all on he healing journeys of our own kind. Right. And something that I've been very curious about for survivors of sexual abuse is like, there's this very complex piece where it embeds into your sexuality. And I'm wondering how you separate like what, what is that? What, what is that for you? How, how is that? How do you cope with that? Can you un, unwind it from your sexuality? It never goes away. It's always there. And I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't have an answer yet. I am in the trenches 
And I have a husband who is so incredibly patient. He is incredibly patient with me right now. You know, it, it's been, it's like I've done all the work that I can do on my own. And now I need another person to practice with, to practice to engage the tools that will get me to the other side of this. It is another person who I must engage with. Everybody ain't able. I finally found a person who, after lots of work with us, together, separate, and me learning to understand the trauma myself, because before that, I was just block it, compartmentalize it, push it down. So you can simply engage. I am extracting that right now. Like literally right now. I am in the process of extracting that and really trying to be present and really being in my own body. I mean, you know, because what happens is I don't have to take care of another person. I can only, I only have to focus on myself and I can focus on how I feel and I can focus on what's coming up for me on the inside and I can be in it. I'm trying to figure out how to get to that space actively and consistently like the courage to just dive into it and like my therapist says it's a practice you'll get better you'll get better at it you know and now the next layer of my practice is to be with my partner inside of that also the big thing that I had to work on in my therapy was loving kindness and compassion for myself. My therapist, we worked for like two months only on compassion exercises for myself because something broke when I was seven. And the only way that I could stay in my life was to perceive myself as an adult. One of the exercises in my therapy for my compassion exercises were find pictures of yourself as a child and stare at them. Stare at them and remind yourself you were not an adult. You were a little boy. You were a child. You know, and for me, the component that I'm working on is enough compassion for myself, you know, and I just want it to be over and it does not work like that. And I, and so my, my work right now is being patient with myself and going, it's okay. You're engaging, you're consistent. It's consistent. I'm doing the work, I'm working my program. I'm gonna get there, 
we're going to get there. I feel different. I really do feel different in relation to this work. And it was the confluence of, I think that's the right word, of uh, pose. And like I've said, pray tell, being a proxy for my own healing, I could play it out in real time and then step back and watch it and go, fuck, that's what I lived through. Yes. You know, it's like, I've, it just, it's been magical in that way. And then to be able to write the book. Which I imagine was a huge catharsis and just reading it and being so, I mean, I couldn't put it down. I read it in one sitting. Oh my goodness. I, I laughed. I cried. I, you know, I was so inspired, you know, especially for, you know, because we have things in common being actors and, but when I thought about my own experience, you know, so full of privilege and access and my mom and Mm -hmm. getting me, you know, and then I thought about that in the context of you with no connections, no access, no privilege, the divine inspiration, the strength. It's, it was, I was just humbled reading how hard you worked and it's such a testament to the power of vision and manifestation. It's like you willed this life into existence. I did. And the book is just such a great, fantastic life story Mm. unfolding. I love the way it goes back and forth. And that's what it is. It's like, you, you know, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. You know, you got to go back so that you understand how to ground yourself in something real, ourselves in something real. You know, that's what I'm, you know, when we talk about the, what's going on now and the erasure, like that's how everything gets dismantled is by erasure. Of course they want to erase black history. You can't heal from a thing until you name and claim the thing. We just have to name and claim it so that we can then get on the road to healing it. Black people don't want revenge. We just want our rights. We just want our rights and to move forward without the bullshit that we have to go through every day. That's it. You know what I mean? Like, so what I'm trying to do is be like Gandhi. (laughs) <laughs> and just be the change that I want to see in myself. That's yeah. all we can do. But also it's that, and it's what you said at the beginning, which is about defining what service means for you mm-hmm. and for me and for each one of us mm-hmm. and acting from that place. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. 
You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Can I ask you please one last random question? Yes. Is there a particular song that you come back to and sing around the house all the time and that's part of your meditation or something that you sing to yourself or when you're home? So there are three songs that I go back to on a regular basis. Okay. There's an artist by the name of Layla Hathaway. Okay. Who is Donnie Hathaway's daughter. Oh, okay. She is an extraordinary artist, R&B soul artist. And she had a song on an album in the early 90s called So They Say. So that's a song I come back to all the time. Then there is an artist by the, ne- by the name of Rochelle Farrell. And she sings a song, once again, an early 90s song called Peace on Earth. And it was, she wrote it with the first Gulf War. Those two songs since like 1991. And then the third is Yolanda Adams, and it's called In the Midst of the Storm. They are the three that have consistently lifted me up and kept me sane, for real. They are a meditation for me, and I sing them whenever, any chance I get, I sing. I sing those first two. I don't sing The Midst of the Storm, but I sing those those first two, but it, they, they're, it it's, it is so simple, you know, and so powerful. And, you know, music is a universal language, which is why I'm coming back, you know, with my music, trying to like really infuse, you know, I call it my purpose, my calling, dare I say my ministry, because that's the language that I have from the church, it's, this is my ministry. I need to minister to people. I'm not just some queen on the red carpet in a dress. I'm really not. You know, it really does go deeper than that. You know, now that I have your attention, a bitch got something to say. Wow, this has been so incredible in every way. Thank you. It has for me Thank too. You. Thank you for sharing Absolutely. and healing healing us all with your insights and your bravery and and, and ditto and ditto and now we have to be friends for real absolutely so when i come out to los angeles and i text your husband tell that bitch to text me back <laughs> I will. 
Thanks for listening to my conversation with Billy Porter. If you haven't already, pick up a copy of his stunning memoir, Unprotected. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 